0: what's going on guys welcome back to another episode of renegade animation on the renegade pop culture podcast network my name is mike i'll be your host for this evening joining me as always is my co-captain cameron
1: howdy howdy
0: now last week we had a very news slash preview heavy episode so this week we're just focusing on reviews and boy the the quality of each thing we're uh we're talking about this week, like actually escalates from worst to best. So we start with Spirit Untamed, which is, as, as of this recording, now playing in theaters and on demand. We have the new anime Godzilla Singular Point, which is on Netflix. And we're finally getting to talk about Disney and Pixar's Luca, available on Disney+. So, all right, let's talk... About spirit untamed.
1: Alrighty, Rue, This is the newest DreamWorks film from the famous studio, and well, it's hard to explain what exactly this movie is. I I know that sound that sounds dumb. You know, it's like oh, it's a sequel to the 2002 or 2003 movie, right? No. It is not. It's a, and then it's like, okay, well, is it a continuation or uh, something of the Netflix TV series, uh, Spirit Writing Free? Nope. So what is this film exactly? Because the DreamWorks has not been very clear about that. Essentially, it's a retelling of... A little bit of the spirit writing free TV ser- series. Well, I say TV, but you know, it's Netflix. Yeah, that's what we got. We got a not recap film, but definitely not a something that's wholly related to either the film or the TV series.
0: You want to know what this is? This is the worst version of the Lego Ninjago ver- movie.
1: Yeah, That's pretty accurate. So essentially, I mean, where do we start with this? Okay, uh, let's start with a little bit of a plot. Lucy Prescott is this young girl who lost her mother when she was a a baby and was then sent away by her father, James Prescott, who's surprisingly voiced by Jake Gyllenhaal. Of all Um, people. Yeah, of all people. Then years later, when she turns 10 or so, she comes back to where... Her father lives as she's riding on the train she sees the iconic spirit a wild stallion that well is riding along with his uh herd once she arrives at uh this new town miradero this movie is wildly forgettable so excuse me if i'm trying to force my memory to remember this movie <laughs> And as she arrives there, she, she encounters some new friends and an evil horse smuggler named Hendrix, voiced by Walton Goggins. What the heck are y'all doing in this movie? Anyway, yeah, anyway, <laughs> if I let that simmer, I'm going to get mad. So then she finds out that the horse wranglers... Uh, led by Hendrix, caught spirit, and then her bond with the wild horse begins. If Shark Tale wasn't already DreamWorks' worst movie, just on every level, I would make a very compelling argument and a very convincing argument. This might be DreamWorks' worst movie.
0: I, yeah, I'm going to agree with you. And I can can already tell... Some people are raising their eyebrows because, you know, most people know that I am, for lack of a better term, a DreamWorks shill. Bar- barring a few exceptions, Shark Tale, Shrek the Third, this I mostly give have given favorable reviews to their filmography. I even think I even think Home, that movie from twenty fifteen, yeah, twenty fifteen, far more watchable. Than this, and I feel bad for saying that because I know neither one of us are the
1: target demographic. But yes, yeah, so, so let's let us let us talk about a few positives. Sure, there are a few decent moments in this movie, like when Lucky Prescott is interacting with Spirit, bonding and such, like gaining his trust. Those moments are decent. It's very much a like How to Train Your Dragon, but a Wild West setting. I was it's- getting those exact same vibes. To give animators so much credit, the animation on the horses is quite good. They are expressive. Now, could they have maybe gone a little more cartoony? Especially with how some cartoony some of the characters look. Sure, but horses are so hard to animate. There are stories all over the place. I think James Baxter has a few. Like when I I think how the story goes was he, um, uh, he was teaching an animation class and someone asked him if he could animate a horse like on, a, on one of those large uh, circus balls. And he was just like, no. <laughs> like that, I mean, that was one of the appeals of the original film. Whatever you have to say about the, the original to, 2002 film. It was gutsy for back then for DreamWorks to put out a film that basically had a character who did not talk or at least directly talk because, you know, they pulled a Thief in the Cobbler and had Matt Damon narrate. Mm-hmm. Like I said, horses are hard to draw. I am terrible at drawing horses. And they were able to get so much emotion out of that character in the original film, and they do that here too. And then later on, during a dream sequence, when they're, like, catching up to the train that the gang took with the horses, there's this cool sequence where they're riding on their horse the three girls are riding on their horses and the sky and the ground match like with the cloud patterns and such yeah that that whole sequence was probably probably my favorite um, you you see it in like they almost show the entire thing in the trailer so if that was your favorite part well you can watch it that way while i understand this was a much lower budgeted film at around 30 million or as far as we know, that's what they've said. I like the human animation, not all of it, but they do try to put in some moments of like more emotional acting per se, you know? Yeah. I like the um, actors that play the three main girls. I like Isabella Mer- Merced, Lucky Prescott. I like Prue uh, Granger who's played by Marci Martin. I like Catherine Grace. Yeah, McKenna Grace. I thought I thought that out, like out of all the actors they did a great job. Okay, you know what? That's all that I have.
0: just <laughs> um, just just to piggyback off that, I think like as far as like some of the backgrounds go, a lot of like the best like the best moments in the film are scenes like that take place during like a sunset because they found it a particular aesthetic that that works well with this with the setting. And also I'll I'll admit like I kind of got a little kick out of the climax. I thought that was it was kind of, it was it was fun enough for
1: the story they were telling. Yeah, no, it, no matter how critical we're going to be, this movie's overall harmless. Out of all the big budget animated films this year, it might be on the bottom, but since I've seen a lot more, it's not the worst out of the whole year. I I,
0: also, I haven't seen as many, so this will be on my bottom, but I'm sure Cameron
1: will fix that soon. <laughs> oh, I will. And I, I also did like some of the musical moments, like when you first meet Spirit. I always liked that chanting kind of thing. Some of the songs were okay. Unfortunately, that's all I have to say that are positive because... Everything else, this movie is so boring and it's like, it feels like it's going by the paces of what it needs to do, which is weird because the co-writer of this film is the creator of the Netflix series. It doesn't have any flair or pizzazz and I would have been not as harsh on it as I am about saying that, but we've also seen Calamity, which is a way better female focused western oh easily and out of curiosity i watched the first and like one and a half episodes in the the netflix series they do change a few things around which is kind of interesting because then they kind of make it a like a a father daughter like their relationship is in strife And he doesn't really know how to bond with her. She doesn't really know how to react with him. To be fair, that has potential. It's also a story we've kind of seen time and time again. And we're about to see that again with Belle. Since, you know, G-Kids is going to bring that film out. There's no nuance or as much nuance as uh, DreamWorks is able to put within their film. Like, even Home had its moments near the end and that you know that film can be fairly obnoxious the tv series is actually not bad but that's beside the point really like a lot of my issues outside of the story first off these villains are terrible not that like they're terrible people they are
0: they're terrible villains that i guess on the one hand i can understand like like the appeal of casting Walton Goggins to play that character because he's played that character a couple times already. They do like nothing new that was even old back
1: when Home on the Range did something similar. It, it very much is like DreamWorks's answer to Home on the Range if they were making films that back when they were trying to like get everything out before Disney and Pixar because of pettiness. They just aren't threats either. They're easily beaten by three girls and their horses, and by the adults, and, like, at no point outside of just catching them off guard do they feel like a threat. And they also have some of the worst lines. Like, oh, God, I groaned when Walton Goggins' character was like, but that horse, man, he's got a lot of spirit in him. (sighs) Um, Speaking of the cast, this might be the most miscast movie I've seen from DreamWorks, only because... I can think of 500 voice actors that could have replaced a lot of these big names. They don't really put in good performances or at least performances that I would say were entertaining. Jake Gyllenhaal gives it his best, but his character has nothing to him. You could have easily just brought back Nolan North who plays Lucky's dad in the TV series. Or, you, or Mar-
0: you could have cast like uh, Maurice LaMarche or some someone who's... Voice is a better fit for the character because man, Jake Gyllenhaal rarely gives like a genuinely bad performance, but when he's miscast, he is basically left high and dry.
1: And then, like, you have like Julianne Moore, could have replaced her with Carrie Walgreen, who plays her character in the Netflix series, Andre Brower. Could have replaced her with like Kevin Michael Richardson. There was no reason to have these big actors in the, in these films, and like Gary Anthony Williams is in this. I get the young kids, but these big names, and they weren't even like major parts of the advertising. And this is DreamWorks. They're one of those studios that still thinks that like, hey, listing out the actors is going to be a big selling point. When they don't,
0: but when they don't even do that, that's when you know that they're,
1: they're going to bury this movie into the ground. It's not doing well either. It's so far has made $22 million, but that's still way under the $30 million budget. And who knows how much marketing they put out. I'm, I'm assuming that they thought they were going to get like a pretty good hit because, you know, not a lot of competition, but now there is a lot of competition. They didn't have to deal with Raya and the Last Dragon or Luca. But now they have to deal with, like, what? A Quiet Place Part 2, Fast and the Furious, whatever else is going to be coming out or came out when this film originally was released. I, listen, I get it. This, This film was made by an entirely different studio, but it just doesn't work here. It doesn't have that feeling of, like, how they handled the Captain Underpants production. It looks bland. And you look at the Netflix series, and, yeah, it looks like a CGI TV series, but... It has this kind of cool painted look on everything. You don't get that here. The clouds look, and the backgrounds look great. Yeah, but everything the, ba- the, else, background,
0: the background's some of the best things in this movie. It's just, it's just kind of a shame that that's where most of their focus went.
1: And I would have been like forgiving of this movie if it had a better story, but it's every like, oh, I'm the outcast. I learned to tame the wild spirits. We've seen this before. DreamWorks has done this before. This kind of comes off like that time that George Lucas was talking about strange magic. And he was like, well, yeah, we're, we're making strange magic because it's going to be like Star Wars for girls. And it's like, oh, But Star
0: Wars is already for girls.
1: How to Train Your Dragon was already for like everyone. That's why against their better judgment of how they make side characters, DreamWorks puts in... A lot of side characters, so you could have, like, a range of characters to connect to. I was just really bored by this movie. I'm trying to remember something else to talk about. It just felt like this whole film was undercooked from every point. The writing, the characters, the story, the animation. And it's funny that they hyped up that Taylor Swift song that played in the trailers, and it's not in the movie.
0: Was it even in the credits?
1: Nope. Wow. (laughs) There was like a whole hype. It's like, oh man, Taylor Swift is going to release the song that was supposed to be attached to this movie. And then I guess they couldn't use it. Or Taylor Swift says like, "Uh uh-uh, no. I just put out my most well-received album. I am not following it up with this.
0: (laughs) One, one, One more positive thing I'll say though. It was nice that this was dedicated to
1: the memory of Kelly Asbury. I was about to bring that up. That was a very nice credit at the very end of the movie. I wish they put it at the beginning because he was, you know, the co-director of the original film who sadly passed away last year due to cancer. It it was very touching. And that's why I can't really be mad about this movie, even though it's like, we are dunking on it constantly, but you know what? We're being way more kind to it than a lot of review reviews are, man.
0: Let me, let me me ask you something because I just noticed that, one thing that this movie and Luca have in common is that these are both uh, feature film uh, directorial debuts. At one point, does that no longer qualify as a free pass? Well. Because you know what else I, is a dir- was a directorial debut? Luca. Um, well, besides that, <laughs> The Mitchells vs. the Machines. And that's, yeah. still my, and that's still my number one film of the year.
1: Same. I don't want to be too harsh on it because I understand not everyone can be like a Tarantino or or like the guy the directors behind many of the best animated films from Disney's 90s period. But on the other hand, when other directorial debuts are happening this year and your source material isn't that great, whether that's because of like management or whatever it's tough i don't think you can use it too much as an excuse i'm not i don't know i'm not gonna give it a full pass because of that
0: yeah i i agree with that if if we're if we're just judging by films from this year then no absolutely not it's it's not fair to say oh well this is your first time so we'll give you a pass i mean sure for all, for all we know, her next movie could be, like, one of my favorites of all time. But we got to we got to focus on the present. We got to focus on what we have in front of us. And, unfortunately, what we have in front of us just doesn't pass muster.
1: It doesn't. And, I mean, like, I'll say this. I like this one more than Shrek to third. But I just, man, this movie just a waste of talent, a waste of a studio's time. And one more more thing. I know
0: that Universal is doing the whole 17 day um, theatrical window, but how come this one gets like the theatrical treatment when Boss Baby 2 will be available on Peacock
1: the same day as its theatrical release when it should have been the other way around? That's right. It really should have been the reverse because I'm sorry, the animation quality of this film is not up to theatrical standards. I understand that not everyone has a hundred million dollar Pixar budget, but when you're going to the theater, you expect a visual quality that you can't find at home. Spirit looks like a film that was meant to be on a streaming service via Netflix or Peacock. I say Netflix because that's where the Spirit series is. It doesn't look theatrical. I know everyone's like every movie deserves a chance in the theater. <laughs> Not this one. I I disagree. I have other films that decided to stay on in like the theatrical like direct to video or direct to streaming service spots. I don't know why this one who was this movie made for? Yeah, e- exactly,
0: because it's not it's not necessarily a sequel to the 2003 film. It's not even a continuation of the animated series. So, unless like the idea is simply to introduce these characters to a new generation well, Netflix, even when they cancel shows, like cancel their originals, it's not it's not like those shows go away. They just you know they'll they'll still be on the surface. like like you can you can watch the animated series anytime you want. There's no reason why this movie needed to exist
1: i can't think of a reason like like out of all the films to bring back a sequel for well not even a sequel like spirit like the show's over the netflix i mean the original movie was a financial bomb and there's a ton of elements to it that do not age well about it and it just wasn't it wasn't that popular considering how it's doing now It just seems like this was a bad idea. They needed something to release and they had this and they were like, okay, fine. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't make it a Peacock original because it was like too late. They already made the deal and whatnot. But this movie just makes Spirit look bad. DreamWorks look bad. Like DreamWorks, for all their flaws, for all the warts, can be a great studio. One of my favorite films from last year was The Crew A New Age. Yeah, and that, yeah,
0: that movie's awesome.
1: It's not like they can't do something about, like to, you know, they can't make a quality film. They can, whether it's a more drama or action focused or more comedy focused. I'm just struggling to find a reason why people should watch this movie. If you're a fan of the original film, this isn't going to work for you. If you're a fan of the Netflix series, You'll, you will just watch the Netflix series and it has a much better art style to it. Uh, anyway, I think that's it. I have pretty much washed my hands clean of this one. And uh, for some reason I got called to task for some reason for this one movie on Twitter. I do not know why. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It,
0: I find it amusing how, how often you'll get attacked on Twitter for rightfully criticizing either things that do not need defending or, I don't know, for, for, some, for some reason you seem to attract the, uh, the trolls and the bots.
1: Well, I don't know why it had to be spirits. I could understand, like, if I got called to task for criticizing Earwig and the Witch or SpongeBob's Sponge Out of Water, I could at least understand that. But spirit? Yeah, no. And what's worse is that, you know, during Annecy, we forgot to bring this up. We saw a preview of the Boss Baby sequel that's coming out. And you could tell there's just so much more passion in that movie. There's more, pardon the pun, spirit in Boss okay. Baby family business. I just don't know why this one had to get to the defense for it. It's like, how dare you? It, well, It's like when you find out that, like, if you dare criticize the Alpha and Omega franchise... Oh, boy. Woof. Anyway, let's move on. I want to talk about some Godzilla.
0: <laughs> yeah. So for those who don't know, Godzilla Singular Point is a Netflix original animated series co-produced by Bones Incorporated and uh, Orange Co. Limited. Bones did like the traditional animation while Orange assisted with the CGI models. And basically, this, this is a series that takes place in the year 2030 and it follows a young engineer named Yoon Arikawa voiced by Johnny Bosch. He works for the local do-it-all shop, the Otaki factory, and he and his friend or coworker happens to investigate this western style house long thought abandoned. Mai Kamino, a graduate student studying imaginary creatures, investigates mysterious signals received from Misakioko a former uh, Saguno District administrative building. These two strangers visiting completely different places as part of completely different investigations both hear the same song. As they become united, they are led into a battle beyond imagination involving the the whole world. So Cameron, you are a bigger Godzilla fan than I am. I want to to hear your general impressions first.
1: Well, if you know me and... I got so much flack for this last year when we talked about this show being announced. I'm very picky with how I want my Godzilla. Sometimes I will enjoy the more methodical, dramatic, you know, cautionary tale, horror kind of version, like the original movie or like Shin Godzilla. But a lot of times... I am a huge fan of the more campy films, the ones where it is as they're made because they want Godzilla to fight another giant monster. Whether there's like more substance behind the monster or not, that kind of depends on what movie you look at. And when I saw this show, this was, you know, right after the Netflix Godzilla trilogy films by Polygon Pictures. And I was just not a fan. I hated those movies with a fiery passion. I thought they were boring. They didn't really have much to do with Godzilla if you took them out. And they were like the worst kind of Godzilla movie where they focused on human characters that were not interesting. And you were constantly wondering where the heck is Godzilla. This show though, does everything that I love about a good Godzilla experience. It's wordy. It does focus on a lot of humans, but it's fun as heck to watch. It turns into more of, like, a monster invasion story than, like, a traditional Godzilla-style story because something that I was really worried about was the fact that Godzilla himself does not appear until two thirds of the way through this thirteen episode season.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, like when when do we actually see him like episode six, seven
1: ish? I think like around eight. Like I mean like technically like they take the Shin Godzilla route with his transformations. Like he starts out as that big red sea monster thing that attacks those Mandras. And Well, first of all, I thought that was Titanosaurus, and if you saw the tail, you wouldn't blame me for thinking that. Then it kind of evolves into different forms until it gets to that horrifying final form that looks like a mix of Shin Godzilla and Godzilla 2000. So then it's like, okay, well, is everything else good at least? Yes. Because they make the humans so much more interesting in this movie than they have been in, like, so many Godzilla movies. Because off the top of my head, I cannot think of or remember a single main character from a Godzilla movie, at least human-wise. They all blend together, and that's kind of the point, but it's also, like, a huge problem. They're there just to push the story forward while having nothing to them
0: this might be one of the first times where you know as, mu- as much as I love the monsters in the series I'm actually finding myself more compelled by the human drama of it all but that's also because I'm a big time travel nut Th- this kind of scratches that itch
1: what works is that they find a way to balance out the humans and the monsters every episode they are dealing with a monster or something. It's not just humans, humans, humans for like three episodes straight and then like, oh, finally, monsters. No, it's pretty much every episode. They are dealing with something, whether it's Rodan in this cool pterodactyl form or what I thought was Gabara, but was not. the Like the, the blue horned creature that they fought or that would like keep showing up and then, either getting killed or something i think it's called like salunga which again i thought this was gabra when we first saw the teaser because it looks exactly like this monster even though gabra was more of a like On- oni an ogre like inspiration but that horn man <laughs> um, i have to say that the team behind this uh show gave more of a hoot about the, monst- the Toho Monster Gallery than I think Toho has ever put interest in in like over a decade or, or really over almost two decades now. Wow,
0: Wow, that's saying and something.
1: They really love Jet Jaguar because Jet Jaguar was probably one of the most polarizing or most hated characters of the original movies, though he has like a charming cult fan base and he's actually not that bad of a character, y'all. Come on. Because Jet Jaguar keeps playing a major role with the humans having to deal with, like, Rodans or Anguidus or whatever else they have to deal with. It's really cool that they give these monsters time in the sun because Mandra was very much like a C-tier Godzilla character. You wouldn't care about him, but they showed up quite a lot. Same with the Rodans, same with Anguidus like the monster variety is great could have been could it have been a little more varied yes but they do have enough callbacks to make it interesting like the moths that appear i think in the last episode are like obvious play like callbacks to mothra of course at any ending credits sequence they do show like Hidora, the smog monster and stuff like that. But, and even though that kind of annoys me that they show, they show like Biolante, Hedra, Megandolon, uh, um, Kumonga, Zone Fighter. That's a huge deep cut if you don't know who Zone Fighter is, which was essentially one of uh, Toho's answers to try and make an Ultraman character. Or like King Caesar, Kiryu, Megalon, This show loves the Toho Monster Gallery. They even have dolls, plush dolls, that were based on the Godzilla animated series from the 90s and the Hanna-Barbera one. Wow. If you're not paying attention, you would miss it. But it's a lot of fun. And I think what helps, again, are the humans. They are constantly like moving the plot forward they are constantly in like the focus and they're always interacting they're always doing something they're not just waiting for the next convenient plot device human to pop up
0: but Cameron we all know who the best character is
1: who's the best character
0: the uh, artificial intelligence which one
1: Jung or Pero 2
0: well both but I was yeah I was specifically referring to uh to Perot 2
1: Yes, voiced by Cassandra Lee Morris in the English dub. Pero is a great AI that helps along with like trying to solve the mystery of exactly what's going on. The show does keep like a pretty solid philosophical theme over everyone. Like with time travel, destiny, controlling the future, controlling your fate. It's not like my favorite kind of plot at times with Godzilla. Like I said, I just want Godzilla to fight another monster. Sometimes you know it was definitely interesting. Perro two helps a lot with that, and it does, and it helps that like Perro two has some of the most expressive animation out of a lot of the characters. And I also like uh, Goro Ataki, who's voiced by Keith Silverstein, and like the English dub is really good. Like you got Erica Harlacher, you mentioned before, Johnny Young Bosch, Cassandra Lee Morris, Stephen Fu, Keith Silverstein, Billy Kamitz plays that a. Guy in the suit with the bowl cut uh, that you meet early on. You have Griffin Poatu, Sean Chiplock, Brittany Cox, Keon Young, Faye Mata, Christopher Swindle, Joe Ackman. It's a good English cast. I wasn't really expecting Johnny Young Bosch to be one of the main characters.
0: Yeah, no, I he I I think he and uh, Keith Silverstein are are the two voices that I kind of I kind of recognize the most, but. Netflix has really done a good job at um, keep keeping like a consistent troupe of, uh, of really
1: good young and old um, vo- voice actors. So yeah, I think SDI Media, <laughs> Spliced Bread Productions, uh, yeah, they've worked on plenty of Netflix dubs like b Doro Hidoro, B Beastars, High Rise Invasion, Record of Ragnarok, We'll see if we want to talk about that show on this podcast. Uh, Ken Oshida. that explains why Keith Silverstein is in like a million of these. But I will say I do have some complaints and it's not really with any of the action. The action's great. I am so happy that the action is so well done. And the CGI, well, it's Studio Orange, the studio behind B-Stars. They know what they're doing at all times I, and... I, have,
0: I have some complaints about the CGI and we'll get there in a minute but the one thing I don't have a complaint about are the actual mo- monster designs they all look very uh v- very unique very distinct from like any previous iterations that we've seen like I I kind of joked that Rodan kind of looks like uh he he kind of looks like the titan version because when we first see him he's got like you know, he kind he, he kind of looks all veiny and sort of inside out. Yeah, meaty. <laughs> yeah, very 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 meaty. Like he like yeah. he came like right out of Attack on Titan, but yeah, but that design is cool. Um, all of the all of like the transformations of uh, of Godzilla look like menacing.
1: Like you do not want to get in his way yeah Now, um and anguirus i was so happy to see anguirus he's like one of my favorite godzilla monsters and like two of the best studios around to animate this stuff it's a good combination and it's obvious that the team's working on this had a lot of passion behind it now i will say i did love the musical cues like the opening's pretty good um, oh my god yes the uh, opening in case is per- performed by Beesh And I like the Polka Dot Stingray ending theme, Aoi. Uh, but w- what I mean by the music cues is that they take, well, Khan Sawada, the composer of the show, who's done a lot of like Dorimon, Grave of the Fireflies and such. He implements a lot of the original Godzilla music cues.
0: I was gonna say, like e- e- even as someone who's not as familiar with with Godzilla, I still once once his theme kicks in, like I I just kind of I just kind of recognize it instantly.
1: Yeah, because you know they they constantly play that da 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 like when Godzilla finally shows up, and then of course the battle music you have to have when when the action sequences are happening. Like it, it pumps me up because I grew up watching Godzilla. It's such an easy Easter egg, but I love it. And it's a lot more than what those terrible Netflix CGI films did, which they had nothing. Oof. But I will say, as much as I liked the deeper themes of like what this show was going for, the dialogue delivery not, not like the voice performances, but just how the characters talked. Were very much like they were just reading what they needed to read, and or what they needed to say, and they came off like those obnoxious college students who are taking like philosophy courses, and like they are know it alls. And I, I constantly like when they when the dialogue got a little too dense with all of the, with this like philosophical quandaries. I keep joking like. I just wanted to ask if you wanted Wendy's <laughs> because it, it's I'll how say. they talk and it, it but it bugs me sometimes, but I, I still overall like the dialogue, but it's like, none of you talk like natural people.
0: It, it kind of gets worse to some extent um, in the second half when, when the plot like really gets like super heady. At the start of the series, I'll say like Yun kind of kind of comes off like very, very cold, very like almost robotic the way like the way he's like, like the like the way he pretty much like predicts like the future and just everything that'll happen. Yeah, it's very inhuman the way he talks at first,
1: and, and I get it, and that's exactly why you needed Habaru and uh, Goro because you needed them to like kind of cut through that denseness and then like may falls into that trap and then you see bb talk and it's like oh my gosh none of you talk like real people it's it's that common trope of like jab at anime of just like none of you sound natural (laughs) i mean it didn't just detract all the way no no of
0: course of course not
1: but it got to that point where it's like, oh my gosh, we're heading into Ghost in the Shell territory. No, <laughs> and I and I love Ghost in the Shell, so be quiet. I mean, that's really it. That's all I really had to complain about. I wish they added more monsters because I thought, like at points, I was like, oh, is that v- like Varin? Oh no, that's just another Godzilla transformation. Or it's like, oh, are they going to make other obscure references? Like they kind of do with the giant bugs by calling them a uh, Komongo, which is like a reference to the, uh, to the giant bug insects from Son of Godzilla, mm. which had the, which um there were the Kamakaris, which were the giant mantises. And then Komongo was his big spider like monster, but it, it because then it's, it's like, Oh, so Rodan has been relegated to being like this pest, like, enemy like they needed a airborne enemy and they didn't want to make another monster so
0: so they just kind of copied and pasted rodan of like five million times
1: yeah and and i i get it though it's not like rodan there's never been more than one rodan the first rodan film had two of them it's not impossible and i get it they tr- they shrunk down a lot of the monsters this time around. Like, they're not as big as Godzilla, which is interesting because, not really, Godzilla is played up as the major threat, which I think was smart. I think that was, like, that was the point. That, like, yes, Rodan, Anguirus, Salunga are very much threats, but when Godzilla enters the scene, y'all better run.
0: <laughs> one, one more thing before before i elaborate on my negative generally speaking do you prefer godzilla as the
1: hero or the villain or does it just kind of depend on the story it kind of depends on the story because shin godzilla and the original godzilla portray him as the antagonistic force the like this is what happens when we mess with nature and such with advanced science that was really not meant to do half of this stuff. And then like, oh, whoops, we dropped a bomb. Um, well, an atom bomb. And well, Godzilla became, <laughs> came out of it. So oops. But I tend to like Godzilla as a hero. That's just me, though. I grew up more on the uh, Godzilla fighting other monsters side of the franchise. But I understand more people preferring when he's more the antagonistic natural force against man
0: just from the stuff that i've seen i kind of side more toward towards you in that i like godzilla as the hero but if you're gonna tell a story about the end of the fucking world then yeah what what better antagonist than
1: a very pissed off godzilla i mean yeah you don't want to you don't want a giant pissed off iguana coming after you so (laughs) But, um yeah, what are these negatives that you have?
0: It's not much. It's just very like every once in a while i I, I, I feel like sometimes the the C, like the CG monsters don't quite blend in with with like the rest of like the 2 d backgrounds and the human characters. I think there was like there' was one scene in like I can't I can't remember if it was, if it was like episode three or four where, like, it just really, like, there was just really one one scene that just felt really jarring. But other, but other than that, for the most part, they, like, they do a really good job blending the two different mediums.
1: Well, like, would you have rather they went, like, full-on CGI? Like, they got, like, they went with Studio Orange or something, instead of just using Studio Bones to animate the 2D sequences, or...?
0: Actually, that's a good question. I don't know how sort of. I think at the end of the day, this this was probably the best stylistic choice. By by making the the monsters CG, it adds like a le- like a level of um, intimidation. Like they literally feel out of this world. So I I can I can understand like from an artistic perspective why they
1: made that choice. Honestly, the monsters being CGI was the best case scenario. Because there was no way these things were going to be animated at 2D. Or if they were, get ready for a lot of still frames. Mm. There was no way the, like, they would have the time or the budget to hand-draw half of these, these monsters. They are way too detailed. If you want an example of the polar opposites, you should look at Record of Ragnarok. Because all the characters in that show are 2D. And they're way too detailed to move fluidly. And either because of time, budget, talent, or resources, or whatever, a mixture of all, there's a lot of standing around. There's no, there's one use of CGI and it looks so much better than everything else in this. So to me, I don't mind the 2D CGI mix of Godzilla singular point. I just think you have to be careful with it. Like to me, and and it should be obvious, when you're making a show Do you want it to be 2D or do you want it to be CGI? To me, if your characters are going to be fairly detailed, like in King and Ashura or Record of Ragnarok, it's best to make them CGI. Or Beastars, I think, works. Or like Dorohedoro. Like those work, but you need to have the right team, the right talent, and the right studios to make it. Yep, it's all all in the execution. Because if you don't know what you're doing, you end up with an axe arm boom and Sorry. nobody wants next arm <laughs> yeah <laughs> overall i really enjoyed godzilla singular points i don't know if it would be in my top 20 anime of the season so or the year so far we're about to hit into the, the summer season so we'll have to see what happens there yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not ready to rank to rank anime yet um there's still there's still a lot that I have to finish but well, I, I put it in my top 30 maybe for for now like I yeah. think it, I think if it had a better pacing with its dialogue and it's like second half I would have been more satisfied but I still overall enjoyed the experience
0: yeah I think I think overall I, I'm not sure where I rank it yet but I will say that this has been a very fascinating watch it's one that I definitely want to continue. And one last thing I'll say before we move on, there's a post credit scene at the end of episode 13. And
1: yeah, I am far too excited for the possibilities. There better be a second season because that's what they imply, especially with who shows up at the end and not just what they're working on shows up, but someone that you only got a little glimpse of in the main show so it's really exciting i hope they make a second season i I could at least see one more season
0: yeah just 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 one more and i'll be satisfied
1: pretty much but we'll have to see what um, what happens let's talk about one of the best animated films of the year so far from the big studios and just animation in general
0: so luca is the direct the directorial debut of enrico Casarosa, and this film is written by uh, Jesse Andrews and Mike Jones, who we'll get to in a minute. So the story is set in a beautiful seaside town on the Italian Riviera and follows a, a young boy named Luca experiencing an unforgettable summer filled with gelato, pasta, and endless scooter rides. Luca shares these adventures with his newfound best friend, Alberto, but all the fun is threatened by a deeply held secret. He is a sea monster from another world just below the water's surface. We'll, we'll start with the general impressions because there's a lot I have to say about this movie and about the ridiculous Pixar discourse that's happened over the past
1: couple weeks. But Cameron, give me your general thoughts first. Overall, I just adored Luca. I love this smaller scale story that Pixar wanted to do. And we'll talk about the Pixar discourse in a second. I found it utterly charming, very funny. I love the characters. And the animation is just gorgeous. I love seeing a big studio say, let's make a Lilo and Stitch. Or we'll talk about it in other great length. A Ghibli movie like uh, My Neighbor Totoro, the Kiki's Delivery Service. That kind of thing. And... I love that they did that. They just said, yeah, let's do it. Because, you know, a lot of people are asking for studios to stop making big comedies or big action films and such. They want to see smaller stories. And, well, this is what it looks like. Now, it doesn't beat The Mitchells versus The Machines, but it's hovering around the second and third place spot on my list having to contend with the Bears' famous invasion of Sicily. But otherwise, that's how I feel about it. Mike, what about you? Uh,
0: yeah, um, where where it falls on my list, it's like it's sandwiched in between the, the Bears' famous invasion of Sicily and Calamity, which is a very good spot to be in because this, this honestly really does kind of feel like... It doesn't really feel like an American animated movie. I mean, not just because our director is um, Italian. Th- this is... Almost a um auto like a semi autobiographical film about his, like summertime during his childhood. If his summer had sea monsters, but just like the whole whole vibe of this movie, you know Luca and Alberto's love for adventure, you know like the cult the culture of the small town, the triathlon, which like the whole community kind of gets involved with. It's a very feel good uh, coming of age story as as someone who is like 25 percent italian i i loved pretty much all the scenes where like where they show plates of pasta because for some reason animated food always looks better than uh
1: like the real thing that's not fair come on man we can't eat that i want it and i'll look stupid trying to reach through the tv for it (laughs) right
0: but there's you know there's there's so there's so much to love from like I know this has been a, a recurring theme for me, but the water is great. The voice cast is terrific. I think like as like these two these kids get older, like Jacob Tremblay and Jack Dylan Grazer, they're given some of their best performances in these voice roles. And then you have the best like like their newfound friend uh, Julia, played by uh, Emma Berman. She and
1: and the villain, who really... Ercole Visconti, voiced by Severillo. Sa- uh, Raimondo though I I think these two kind of steal the show but really the entire cast is terrific I really like Julia's dad Massimo he was my favorite character outside of the main two of course I think this might be Pixar's first major secondary character to be handicapped like to be a focus and such yeah you know that's that's not nothing I mean like it's not a main character but still you know like I love his like when Alberto looks at his arm and he's just like a sea monster ate it and they freak out like and It's like no I came into this world like this and it doesn't bother him it's just like it, he's not defined by his his lack of another arm strong he's got a good spirit about him he's protective I, I, of his daughter and I,
0: I think that's that's what that's that's what kind of made me uh do a double take when first said that like oh wow. He's he's a character in a in a fishing town, but he's just he just has one arm and it's no big deal.
1: Yes, and I will say while they aren't like the most groundbreaking parents in an animated film, I did like uh, Daniela and Lorenzo who are voiced by Maya Rudolph and Jim Gaffigan. Luca's parents. I mean, it's kind of tough and it's weird because we're in a year where we can say like compare Maya Rudolph mom performances. <laughs> but i think she does a great job with Daniela. she's just like a worried mom humans are not the most understanding people on earth we like to think we are but we're not at least not all of us <laughs> they, they they also get some of the biggest laughs too
0: because because the way they're trying to find uh, their kid <laughs> they you know they they just they when, once they discover, like, what they become on the surface, they take advantage of the fact that, like, water kind of exposes their sea monsterness. Yeah. You know, when they kind of
1: interfere with a bunch of kids playing soccer, they they almost become, like, bullies, and it's hilarious. <laughs> I love seeing Lorenzo see the first kid, like, the first kid they notice, and then they just push him in the water, and he's like, oh, whoops. Or, like, when they realize that they... They turn into humans when they come on land. Daniela beats the tar out of Lorenzo. And he's just <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I deserved that one. I'm, I'm more awake right now. <laughs> and then, of course, let's also talk about one of the two great side characters also outside of Massimo and the parents. Grandma Pagudo, voiced by Sandy Martin, who is just the best grandma ever. Oh, yeah. And Uncle Ugo, Voiced, voiced by, by Sasha. Sasha Baron Cohen. I didn't realize that was him at first. And then it's like, oh, wait, that is him. I, I just like the characters here. I They're all very distinct and memorable to me. Now, Ercole is a very typical bully character. But his animation is very perky and mm-hmm. very like on point. I love when he realizes that his fancy moped almost got scratched. He's like... Well, someone's having a good day, and his stare is just like, I'm going to kill one of you, whoever caused <laughs> my moped to br- almost break. While, like, I don't think he's, like, the best Pixar villain or anything, he's still very amusing. It's just how pathetic he is. He's not the best Pixar villain, but he might be the funniest. If for
0: no other reason than how he abuses his, um, like, his two idiot henchmen, they're kind of like the, ja- like the Horace and Jasper of this universe.
1: Yeah. CCO and Guido
0: both both of them voiced by Peter Sohn and Lorenzo Kriski respectively
1: yeah by the way if Peter Sohn sounds familiar he was um Squishy from Monsters University oh. and uh he's Emile from Ratatouille. okay and then uh this is the only voiceover credit Lorenzo Kriski has they do a good job but man I have to say, I really love the fish animation that they give these fish people. Mm. Like when uh, Luca is hesitant to go to the surface, and this is like after his uh, being dragged up by Alberto. How he just moves back, like to the tip, like to the top of the surface, to going back down to back, like back and forward. It's very fish-like, and they capture that mannerism of like if you've ever been in like a lake or. The shallow parts of a beach and you've seen fish come up to you and like nibble on your skin they're always kind of like is this thing gonna hurt me maybe i'll come up. okay maybe i'll try again okay pixar is one of the top animation studios around for a reason they capture these small mannerisms with between the humans and the fish people and i love the, especially when uh, Luca learns how to walk. Yeah, That's that, probably one of my favorite sequences. Well, I, really, I, I, I love that sequence. Well, really, a, a lot of the early sequences with Alberto and Luca are just delightful. They feel like real friends. Like, really good friends. And I love, like, when they're, make, they're makeshifting a moped and Lucas is like, okay, I gotta get going. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> two, hours,
0: two hours later.
1: I okay, really I'm- have to get going. Okay, bye. 40 minutes later. Okay, I, but this time I'm serious. I really have to get going. Okay, whatever. <laughs> then they finish up the moped. And I will say, I know a lot of criticism has been aimed at Luca because of the, the character designs. Because it doesn't look like traditional Pixar, even though Pixar, just like DreamWorks, do not have a set design philosophy. It's really whatever fits the story mm-hmm. or who's working on the movie and such. I mean, really, you could say like the Toy Story universe does but you wouldn't say a toy story human looks the same as a ratatouille or like a Wally e human or like a soul human.
0: All right, since um, you since you brought it up, do you want to rip, do you want to rip off the band-aid now?
1: I want to talk a little a few more details that I like. I like the bean mouth of like the kid characters. I think it gives them a very distinct look, kind of like an Ardman character look. I mean, really, that's kind of like what this these designs remind me of. They remind me of Aardman characters. Yep. Not so much as like Sony characters that like I saw some early impressions of. They also have a few distinct little details, like especially like the hair details on like Luca and Alberto is very different. And I think that's very cool. They add a few more like motion blur effect. You know, like how if you watch the Mitchells versus the machines, like they'll animate like brush strokes. Oh, to yeah? be, like the Like the movement and such like, like a punch or something. You get that like when Alberto and Luca are running down the hill, they'll sometimes do like a little blurring of the legs running. I I just think that's very cool. And of course the dream sequences look amazing. Like when they're fantasizing about getting a moped, driving around, going into space. And there's this cute little detail that I didn't notice until I watched it a second time. When uh, Luca thinks that there are sardines in the sky, aka the stars, because that's what Alberto says, when Luca gets knocked out and instead of stars spinning around his head, they're little sardines. Oh, that's 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 a cool detail. Some, like something, said, else, something
0: else um we haven't brought up yet is in the in, in the intro, Luca's job in the water, he's he, he's basically like an underwater sheep herder. And yeah, yeah. the and the and the fish that he uh that he tends to are basically water
1: sheep. Uh, and and I know like some of them they all look the same. But they still, but you still get a distinct personality out of most of them, especially mm-hmm. the one that's just kind of like, "I'm gonna go away now, Like, dude, are you actually leaving? Maybe. <laughs> like, there's a all, lot. It's of all joke. in the eyes. The eyes yeah. give the personality. That I mean, it's just like this movie just has a lot of charm with its designs and personality and. How they eat. Oh gosh, the cat. The cat is one of my favorite characters it, because it's hilarious how like suspicious the cat is at all times and then when they uh, when the cat finally realizes that they are fish people or like when uh, Alberto accidentally chucks the cat into the water and then they <laughs> cut to him like the cat being like mortified like oh my gosh I'm in the water I, okay I'm gonna kill you oh. oh, well thank you for the fish <laughs> like man this movie man and also, was the cat, like, designed specifically to be, you know, a, like, a twin of the father with the mustache and everything? I'm sure, because sometimes you get those pictures of, like, oh, look, or it's like that uh, 101 Dalmatian thing where the dog looks like the owner. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I
0: always get a kick out, of, kick out of that whenever I see it in animation.
1: Yeah, the cat looks like a uh, cat version of Nick Offerman. Or like his Ron Swanson character from uh, *Parts and Wreck*. Yep, <laughs> man, it's just I love all the little details in the animation. But hold yes. on, one, let,
0: one more one more thing before we get to that. Um, I want to mention like the music composed oh, by Dan uh, I did, I didn't know who who composed it first. I thought I thought it would have been like I don't know like Giacchino because he does like everything. But no, seriously, the mu- like like the mu- the music is wonderful. It really does help set like the tone and it just kind of adds to the atmosphere and, and it just kind of feels when you when you listen to the music you kind
1: of feel like you're in this uh town well it's like inio morricone was supposed to or was considered to do the soundtrack for luca but then he passed away last year and you know inio morricone you know he did like the hateful eight he did uh like the john carpenter the thing once upon a time in america the Untouchables. Dude's a legend. Yeah, the dude's like one of the best ever. Or like Cinema Paradiso, Fistful of Dollars. The guy is amazing. And unfortunately, like I said, he passed away last year, uh, July 6th. And Dan Romer was the composer behind films like Beasts of the Southern Wild, *Beast of No Nations, uh, Wendy from last year. Like the guy is good. Like he has this kind of whimsical Low key side to him, and he also does the music for Superman and Lois. If you're curious, I I, I knew I knew his style sounded familiar. They also in, infuse a lot of Italian pop music to and tunes from like uh, Mina, Edoardo, Benato, Gianni Morandi, Rita Pavone, and Portetto Citra. It feels so natural. It doesn't feel like ham fisted or anything. It it's really just a summertime playlist in Italy. But okay, should we talk about the elephant seal in the room? Absolutely. You start.
0: I'm not going to name the outlet who published that that article about has Pixar lost our touch because I don't want to give them any more attention, but it really is just ridiculously unfair how high of a pedestal that Pixar is placed on to the point where if a movie isn't like, you know, the second coming of that, like that means their golden years are behind them. And like, there's, it's, it's like the point of no return. And really that's, that's unfair. No, no studio should have to live up to that sort of pressure.
1: It's impossible for a studio to keep reinventing the wheel. And while I do understand the 2010 or the 2011 to 2020 lineup of films was not always the best from Pixar. Because, you know, that's when we had like Cars 2, Brave, Monsters University, Good Dinosaur, Cars 3. And I'm sorry, I I was not a huge fan of Incredibles 2, even though the family stuff was great. And even though you still had great movies, like... Inside like Out. Inside okay. Out, Coco, Soul, Onward and such. There's definitely like a lapse of like something happened in between that period of Pixar because it's like they had the impossible task of trying to follow up a decade of Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Finding Nemo, Monsters Inc, Incredibles, Ratatouille, WALL-E, up. That's not fair. We don't do this with other studios. Disney has its ups and downs that were almost disastrous to it. Mm -hmm. We've had distributors who don't always put out the best movies, but we don't make a big deal about when they don't put it out. We don't say, oh, is A24 not picking the right movies? Or should G-Kids have picked up fireworks or whatever? Or Earwig and the Witch? But when Pixar, like when it comes to them, they are, you better reinvent the wheel make me burst into tears or change my life for the better or it's a failure. It's lesser Pixar. And that's toxic and unfair to the people who work on these movies who are already dealing with, from what the sounds of it were, a pretty hostile environment. It, like we're going to see them change. We're going to see them expand into more stories and and experiment a little. And that's healthy. If a, stu- if a studio can't, experiment like they have to keep making movies that make money or else they they'll keel over you know like what happened with paramount basically like after that what was it the last night transformer movie like when that movie tanked on them they just spiraled that's not healthy the fact that pixar can is able to do these ambitious slightly more adult experimental films like inside out and soul and then follow it up with like this fun, low key charming movie with Luca that's great that's healthy speaking of diversity
0: we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get to the other elephant in a second but i th- i think another thing that rubbed me the wrong way about that article is that you know we've we've stressed the point about how pixar shouldn't be held to this high of a standard but it's al- it's also kind of ironic how we're seeing that article now as Pixar is entering a transitional period. You know, Pete Pete Doctor assumed the role left behind by Lasseter when he was um, <clears throat> removed from his position. So we're we're under a new regime. You know, Pixar's been doing those Spark shorts on Disney Plus. So they've been they they've been they've been bringing in more outsider talent, which is good because in order for a company to grow and to expand, you, like you need to have fresh new voices because also that, that just makes for like better and more exciting story opportunities. So, you know, if, if, we're, if we're going to keep insisting that Pixar reinvent the wheel and make a masterpiece every time that's a lot of pressure to put on like these new these newbies and that doesn't really create a healthy work environment
1: now granted the article in question is a podcast and i did listen to it outside of the very very clickbait title i understand where they were coming from i don't fully agree with it but I understand it. But I do think if they were going to post something like this, they needed to do this back like 2017, like after Finding Dory and such, like when they were just about to do another Cars movie. And even though Cars 3 might be the somewhat best of of that trilogy, it is like, man, Pixar, what happened? Because then right after that, we got Coco. And I know people loved The Incredibles 2, even though I don't think it's as good as the first film. But then we got like Toy Story 4, Onward, Soul, and now Luca. Most studios can't even dare to make something that consistent in quality. And I know some people are like, well, Toy Story 4 is pointless. Well, yeah, we're not talking about that right now. It's just like, if you're going to do this with Pixar, and I get it. Pixar is like, was the groundbreaker, the motivator to push more experience, In animation and what have you, but it's there's a lot more competition now. And no offense to Pixar, Disney, I love both of them, but some studios are pushing it more than them. Like especially with Sony and Netflix. So we we just need to treat them all equally to me. But that's that's just how I feel about it.
0: And hell, those are those are just like the like the mainstream studios. We haven't even we haven't even discussed you know. Places outside of the U.S., like Cartoon Saloon
1: in in Ireland, like Studio Chizu, Studio Four C, and like even like Studio Ghibli doesn't get this kind of like are Ghibli out of touch? Granted, a lot of their movies are still pretty good and consistent, with only a drop when no offense when Gorō Miyazaki was introduced as a director. But, but we don't say like is Ghibli out of touch? No. <laughs> it's probably best for them to actually experience a little failure. Yeah, heck, like some of the films did not do well on their side of things. And then they pick it right back up with like Spirited Away and what have you. Because from what I remember, I don't think Princess Mononoke, even though it's like their most acclaimed film, did not do well at the box office. And it's, then-
0: it's, it's never usually talked about as like a financial success. It's, it's one of those critical darlings.
1: Yeah. I mean like like I said I understand. Pixar kind of definitely hit an inconsistent quality marker the like in the 25th, uh, 2010s but they're still pretty good. That podcast still does say like but there's yeah, they're still pretty good. But yeah, I should people shouldn't be expecting them to keep reinventing the wheel or inventing a new way for it to rain or something like over California or something. I don't know. <laughs> But, um, but that's all I have to say about that.
0: What, what, one other thing I'll add is that uh, even some of Pixar's worst films are still better than other studios best. So we can all have our opinions
1: about the studio like but I think on the, on the whole, they're gonna be okay. yeah, they're, they're perfectly fine. They're not going Disney can't afford to get to let like, go of Pixar. Like there's a reason why they bought them because people might not remember. Disney tried to make CGI animated films for a few years and it failed on them hard. Like Disney probably would have died in some way, shape or form during the 2000s. Because they were dealing with, there were, granted, I'm saying this as, as like, there aren't already more important issues to criticize Disney for. I'm just saying like in perspective, Disney had like bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb during the 2000s. They soiled their reputation and their films for, and also there are just a hundred other reasons like why 2D animation stopped. But part of it was them. They lost track of who they were as a company and did not put out good films or at least satisfying films. I know a lot of people love Atlantis and Treasure Planet, but, you know. And then, like, they tried to do their own CGI films, and while they were sort of financially successful, they are considered some of Disney's worst movies, like Chicken Little. And I know a lot of people like Meet the Robinsons, but come on. In 2007, they weren't, that wasn't the best movie of that year. No. I think let's move on.
0: Okay, yeah. There's there's a there's a couple other things to talk about. One is actually kind of ironic when people are negatively comparing this movie to Studio Ghibli, uh, like calling this in Ghibli light. I kind of laugh because one of the one of the screenwriters, um, Mike Jones, worked on the English adaptations for The Wind Rises and The Tale of Princess uh, Kaguya. Like it's just kind of amusing how like the writer of two Studio Ghibli films is kind of like caught in the crossfire of negative Ghibli comparisons.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a. some people are judging this a little too harsh because at the end of the day, while this film does have very Ghibli elements to it... It's still mostly still its own identity. It to, I still want it to be a Pixar film. I don't want them to try to beat... Like really, that's when a studio starts to fail is when they try to start trying to be like other studios. That's what happened to Warner Brothers Animation in the 90s and the 2000s. They tried to copy Disney and failed hard a lot. And then that's what happens when the Iron Giant flops because it was the best movie of that year and no one went to see it because... WB put out a bunch of terrible movies because they were trying to be like Disney.
0: And and, and to be fair, there's there's not there's nothing wrong with wearing your influences on your sleeve. Like everyone, like a lot of our favorite filmmakers have said before that like Hayao Miyazaki is like one of their biggest influences. And hell, even Miyazaki
1: was like a Disney, like a Walt Disney fanboy in his youth. Miyazaki like burst the way most Japanese animated films want to be like they want to have that ghibli spark for it to come back to luca is not a shock i think a lot of studios and people working at like pixar dreamworks illumination and such want to make films that have the vibes of the stuff from overseas like Ernest and celestine or mirai or wolf children where it's like it's smaller scale it's not super comedy focused and we can just let the characters live in the world because it really, that's what it, that's what it means to me to be like a Ghibli film. You take your time, you let the characters bamf around a little, and you just let the animators flex and you just let the characters live within their own world. Yeah. With now, with, that, with, with that, with that said, that is my one problem with this. Well, I have two problems with this movie one and it's really the one thing that everyone has said so it's not like what i'm saying is anything unique if they wanted to be like a ghibli film they should have made this film 30 minutes longer it's well paced at 90 minutes sure but it would have been nice for them to just live within the town instead of just having to feel like they had to push the story forward and i mean that's how we got some of the best ghibli films that's how we got kiki's delivery service like i said Miyazaki storyboarded his films first before writing an overall like script and such and and you can re- and you can really
0: tell the few movies that i've seen like Ca- castle in the sky is a great example of you know it's an action movie sure but you also get time to live in that
1: world and you, we'll see plenty of that when we get to like some of the his other films films like my neighbor totoro and and again, yeah, and Porco Rosso and Kiki's Delivery Service. Like, Ghibli is really good at doing that. And so are so is our studios like Chizu and uh, Sayansaru. And that's really, like, it, it would have just been nice for Alberto and Luca to enjoy more of the summer instead of having to train for the third act conflict triathlon. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's well-paced. The conflict is a lot more set up than a lot of Ghibli films, no offense, but just let them live in the world a little more. That's all like I want to see. Like these characters are great. I love the the little girl and Luca and Alberto. I love them hanging out and such. I love seeing Luca and Julia just walk around on the rooftops looking at the stars and such. There, there's a lot of charm to that. It would have even been nice to see like Luca's parents kind of be like hey you know what this ain't so bad being up here because then it's like when you get to the third act it is very like I'm not going to say predictable but the conflict feels doesn't feel well paced.
0: It does kind of feel like a literal race to the finish line. Something I imagine um, that might have made the the climax feel a, a little better paced is you know, like we said, if this if this movie tacked on like another thirty minutes, you could have spent more time with, like, say, the volunteers who who are working on this uh, at this triathlon. Like, you could have you could have explored more of the town. We could have seen more pasta dishes. There's a lot that you can do, you know, with more screen time. And I think perhaps one. This isn't specifically a criticism of Pixar, but. American animated films in general is, have you, have you noticed that like barring a few exceptions, they almost feel like obligated to hit that 90 minute mark?
1: Yeah, no, they're obligated to try and hit a traditional story rhythm. And not to say they need to do something like Pulp Fiction and change the continuity of the story or anything like that. They need to maybe start leaning towards just slowing down a bit. They, know, they don't need to constantly push the story forward unless it gets to a point where it's like, okay, well, what did the state and what have you? But still, like, you don't need to do it for every film, but sometimes but, there, there are moments where it does feel like a lot of American animation just pushes the third act to get to the end. Not that, like, every story is rushed or anything like that, but you, you get the idea.
0: Yeah, and the only reason why this, like, this ending feels a little bit rushed is is we just didn't feel like we spent enough time
1: in this town and the ending is very sweet because there are a lot of themes with this movie about like self-discovery childhood friendship like discrimination and, and acceptance but we've seen that before and unfortunately because of the world we live in right now it's going to stay a timely theme of discrimination and what have you. I I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there if there was a way to keep the small scale story vibe all the way through <laughs> without having some kind of conflict to kick the third act into gear or like the fifth act or depending on how, how you tell your story. But it is like, you get what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's, pre- it's predictable, even though it's still great. I love it. And I love little details that... They put in, like, at the end, like, when the camera's panning out, you see uh, Luca's dad go up to the girl's dad to kind of, like, befriend him and such. And it's, it's really cute. It, it's a small little detail, and you'll mi- blink and you'll miss it. And I guess we should talk about the ongoing discussion about something else about this film. It, I mean, and you'll probably reference this video at the end with your recommendation. There's an ongoing discussion of whether... Luca is an LGBT plus story because of the metaphors with the monsters, the discrimination. There are literal elements that you can take away from the sea monsters turning into humans and being among humans. But then if they, the humans find out they're sea monsters, they're hated. And then at the end, they are accepted. And while the director said, no, it's none of that because, you know, early on when this film was announced, Everyone was like, oh, it's Pixar meets Call Me By Your Name. Even though now that joke is extremely tasteless.
0: Mm, because
1: yeah. of it wasn't even my favorite movie at all. But then with all the stuff going on with one of the actors, yeah. So let's stop doing those comparisons now, please. And yes, I take the word of the director that he just wanted to have a more just childhood memories of friendships and what have you, but I also think people are going to interpret art wildly differently from other people, and I can see a lot of people from the LGBTQ plus communities taking away those elements from some parts of this film.
0: And just to add add to that, just because the director says like. Oh, this is just a this is just a uh, movie about friendship, because I think he al- he also kind of clarifies that there there's it, it's not that this is not a gay love story. It's just not a love story, period. Because he says this is like before puberty, before girlfriends, boyfriends, all of that stuff like complicates things. You know, that's that's fine, but just because it's not a love story. That doesn't mean it can't also be interpreted as a queer coming-of-age story because of the things that we talked about. You know, the like the strong an- anti-bigotry med- message. Even 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 like you know coming coming up to the surface is some sort of metaphor for coming, coming out. Of this. Yeah, coming out or or transitioning or or anything of
1: that sort. The director's not gonna. Well, hopefully he's not gonna be like no, y'all, you're misreading my movie. Stop it. Your theories are all invalid. He's not going to say anything. He's not that kind of guy. It's what you take away what you want from this movie and you don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Whether you take it as a super close friendship between two boys or as a queer coming out or a queer romance story because art is interpreted in many ways it's subjective don't make me tap the sign
0: (laughs) i i I know we all kind of make fun of uh of the english teacher who reads too much into everything but you know as silly as it can be when we say like oh the red door represents pain and despair and the author says it's a red door as much as we make fun of that, art can be interpreted however you want.
1: Yeah, but in, in general, Luca is just fantastic. I want to see Pixar do these smaller scale stories more often because, like, because then it's like if they try to reinvent the wheel every single time, it becomes less special when they do. So it, let them t- exactly. let them tell let them tell these smaller stories. Be more open to that. Because if that happens, you might make a change of how these studios run their animation houses. Who knows? <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely?
0: Yeah. Um, my fi- final thoughts on Luca are this movie is just delightful. It's one of those perfect, it's one of those perfect summertime films that just kind of distill all the best parts of growing up and hanging out with your best friend uh, during the summer. If you're, you know, whether you are of, like, Italian descent or your parents are immigrants or whatever, I'm sure this movie will reach, like, a very wide audience. Uh, Now, moving forward, I want to see Pixar continue to, you know, hire new voices, experiment with different types of storytelling, and, hell, maybe even experiment with different styles of animation. One, One of the biggest missed opportunities is Pixar not following through with their stop motion collaboration with uh henry selick that would have been something amazing
1: yeah no it's like they should have the clout by now to start experimenting a lot more and disney needs to let them do that you hear that disney you let your studios and your teams of super talented people that you need to make sure you're all paying respectfully and a lot that are making these movies for your bottom dollar let them off the leash a little make let them experiment let them try out to make films that you'd see from overseas maybe try out 2d animated films every once in a while or stop motion or cgi art styles that no offense that sony pictures animation beat you to the punch with and also
0: don't be afraid of actually telling authentic stories, you know, about and about and
1: featuring, like, prominent, um, marginalized voices. Exactly. I would like to recommend a few films that are in the similar vein of Luca. And now these are all G-Kids films. I think some of them are, are getting sent to the Criterion channel. Ooh. I recommend a few. A Cat in Paris which is this cool, stealthy action adventure heist movie that's very low key and just has a fantastic art style and atmosphere. It's also got uh, Steve Blum. You know how much I love Steve Blum. Another one is called A Letter to Momo, which is about a young girl moving to a new small town after the loss of her father and befriending three yokai. And I've recommended this one before, but I feel like it fits along perfectly because it's about her living in the summer and and a supernatural element to it. Aya of Yop City, I think, is also heading the criterion. And it's a film that takes place in 1970s Africa. And it's just these characters living their life. Just living like normal people. And that's just so cool. And for my final recommendation, I'm going to recommend the Masaki Iwasa classic which we'll need to find time to review Lou over the wall because it's another coming of age seaside story I know a lot of people like to compare it to Ponyo but it's not Ponyo it's nowhere near Ponyo please stop making that comparison those are my recommendations that are I'm like the Netflix category of like you watch this so you might like this
0: (laughs) I I don't have nearly as many uh Film recommendations. My my one TV recommendation for those who are keeping up with the Owl House, I'm not gonna spoil anything because I don't know, Cameron, if you're caught up, but the most recent episode, Echoes of the Past, is probably one of Alex Hirsch's best performances as King and as Hootie. It's one of the funniest and saddest episodes uh so far this season. And just season two in general is off to a damn good start you know if you're trying to get caught up on the show now is a good time when things are are really uh ramping up as for my youtube recommendation there is a uh, a youtuber by the name of uh Laron Reedus. he is a gay a gay black youtuber who has covered luca on two on two different videos one one is kind of like his speculation video that came out you know just just before the film was released and after after one of the trailers and then the second one is all about Julia, how she's portrayed as like the ally of, of our two uh, lead characters. Those are our recommendations. This week we weren't able to get to the uh, the Ghibli journey, but to make up for that, we'll be covering two films next
1: week, along with America, the motion picture. We'll be doing Nausicaä, of the Valley of the Wind, and... Then we're going all the way forward to the wind rises.
0: Yeah. Basically, we're doing the uh, the how it started to how's it going meme with Miyazaki next week. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, I think that's a wrap for today. Before we head out
1: of here, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. I have my own website called Biz, where I review animated films and shows called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash View. If you like my work, you can support me there. And you guys can find me on Twitter at Captain k 42 You can check out all my
0: quick thought reviews on letterbox.com slash coachk42. You can find me in all the various Facebook groups at my name. You can check out Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at RenPopCulture. You can also find us on Podchaser. You can check out all of our previous podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, check out RenegadePopCulture.com. That's where you'll find everything from podcasts to editorials to, to videos. need to escape? So do we. That'll do it for this installment of Renegade Animation. Thank you guys for joining us, and we will catch you guys later. Peace out. Bye.